right, Utah first. Okay, four score. <laughs> 20 or 10 or something like that. Four score in seven years ago. Is, is that all right? Did I get that right? Hey there, Slavic Connection listeners. It's Michelle, and I'm here today with Misha. Hey, Misha. Hi, Michelle. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. How are you? (laughs) I'm surviving. Actually, more than surviving. Today, I was super excited because we had a wonderful conversation with an even more wonderful guest. Who did we talk to? Today, we had Interim Director of Clement Center for National Security, Dr. Paul Edgar, a philologist of several ancient languages. He served as infantry officer in the U.S. Army and saw service in Korea, Italy, Iraq, Afghanistan. He holds a PhD in Middle Eastern languages and is just an amazing person overall. Honestly, for myself, this is one of the best conversations we've had on the podcast. So take a listen. I've never not prepared so much for a podcast because I didn't know what to do. Uh, this is absolutely what we always want. <laughs> to have you and we probably should have done this like three years ago and I don't know what happened oh the pandemic that's right that's what happened so but yeah we've been remiss in not having you so we're so glad you're here I think the first thing that all of our listeners will want to know about you is just who is Paul and where did you come from you know how did you get into academia how did you take it from the military to the university space okay okay I'll do my best (laughs) I'm telling the truth So I'm originally from Albuquerque, New Mexico, and really stumbled into college, wanted to to get involved with federal law enforcement at the time. This is kind of the era of Miami Vice and and bad boys and stuff like that, right? Where these these cop shows and cop movies, you're like, that is so cool. So that's what I thought I'd do. And they, uh, the federal law enforcement agencies told me to major in a STEM field. And to get military experience because they didn't hire at the time they didn't hire straight out of college. So, so I did and joined ROTC. And my first experience doing kind of what I would call real army stuff. It, it took a while; probably took about nine months before I had something like that. Uh, that kind of experience in ROTC, I developed a real enthusiasm for, in military terminology, for the work of the infantry of an infantryman. And, and in particular, uh, paratroopers and, and rangers, special operators, things like that. So that really got a hold of me. And so I went into the Army aiming to do that. And, and I was very fortunate in that my second assignment was, was, was with 2nd Ranger Battalion. So did airfield seizures and hostage rescue and, and uh, you know, cool raids and, and, and all that kind of stuff. It was, it was super enjoyable and exciting. And it got me hooked for, for what I thought would be a one or two terms of service, got me hooked for a lifetime or for a career. But roughly half of my, the first half of my career was peacetime, the peacetime 90s. And we were doing a lot of stuff. And I was all over the place from, you know, from Panama to, to Thailand to, uh, to North Africa and uh, Eastern and uh, Western Europe. So we were doing lots of things. Was in you know, was involved with uh, with Kosovo and a number of real world operations, but but still nothing that I would say amounts to like serious combat, right? Mm-hmm. Serious war. So 
And, and then the second half of my career was post 9-11, which was all combat, right? Or almost in, entirely combat. So as we were sorting out what to do in those first couple of years, both in Iraq and Afghanistan, one of the things that was helpful to me was there were academics that were involved that were trying to inform what it was that we were really involved in, what was going on, um, what were we encountering. They were trying to be constructive. There were probably lots that, that were not being constructive too, but I didn't, I didn't happen to come in touch with those. But it occurred to me that this was really helpful. I don't know that it helped us do better in Iraq or Afghanistan. I think there's an argument that it did, but I know neither one of those ended the way we had hoped. So to say that they helped us succeed is not the right way to put it. But to me, they were really helpful in understanding what it was that I was involved in and doing and how maybe I could do better and our units could do better. That paired with, I was, I was really fortunate. There's another long story behind it. I got what's called the Olmstead Fellowship or the Olmstead Scholarship in, in the military. And in, in short, Olmstead Fellows from all of the services go to non-English speaking countries to, to learn a new language and to get a master's degree in that target language, not an English speaking program or something like that, which many foreign universities have, right? But to study alongside the students who are you know, local nationals who are citizens of that country. And I was, was able to go to Tel Aviv University. And so I learned Hebrew, became modern Israeli Hebrew, became fluent, not native, but really very, very fluent in, in modern Israeli Hebrew. And that was kind of life-changing too, right? That not all of us, but many of us, we get bit by the grad school bug. And that's what happened, right? Like, oh, wow, it's so cool. Amazing to be smarter than you were before, right? <laughs> and all these powerful insights and all of that attracted me as well. So, and all of those things happened within the, you know, three or four years of each other. And so it convinced me that if I ever, you know, at whatever point I retired from the army, that I would maybe try to give it a go and get a PhD and go into academia. And so that's what I did. I retired in 2014. There was a lot involved with the decision to retire, but retired in 2014 and came to the University of Texas to do a PhD in Middle Eastern Languages and Cultures. And while I was in a very different stage of life than many grad students, I tried to experience grad student life as a kind of a normal grad student, you know, so I was entirely separated from the military. I was using the GI Bill, but I was, you know, I was here like a normal PhD student. I was a TA. I was an instructor, right? So you're kind of carrying the load of a grad student, of a real grad student, right? Or at least a real grad student at a public university and doing both the coursework and uh, sometimes being a TA is easy, but then sometimes being a TA is really terrible, <laughs> right? It's it more, more often than not, it's easy. But then the terrible times you're like, oh my gosh, 80 papers on the same thing, <laughs> poorly written. Um, so no, only some of them are poorly written. There is a heavy part to it. So wrapped that up in 2019. And I was very fortunate in that the same time that Will and Bowden here in the Clement Center needed an, a, an associate director, I was finishing my degree and it was just a good match. And so I've been here for four years now. Wow. Was that in 2019? 2019. Yeah. Was that, was that the story? Was that? Okay. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) That's it. We're done. (laughs) 
in your role as an interim executive director of the Clement Center, um, what are your priorities and goals for advancing the center's mission, and particularly in the context of the developing international situation? Right, right. So this is a hard question for a few reasons. So Will and I made a really good pair here. There was a really natural kind of gravitation to different parts of the work. And so together under Will's leadership, you know, we expanded the staff from about three or four to 12. And that, we didn't just increase numbers of people. We increased the services that we provide to students, the programs that we provide to students, the, the number of events that we provide to the public, the number of outside organizations that we have close contact with. We now, you know, we now have a very, a very strong military fellows program, which we didn't have before. So all of these things grew, right? So now when you ask about priorities, mm-hmm. the priority is not to fail any of these students. So that while we're in this interim space and in the process of hiring others who can who can sort of uh, share the load of student engagement and academic work and teaching, that, that we don't fail any of those undergraduates or any of our portfolio students at LBJ or our PhD students or our military fellows. So we have a fantastic staff and have divided up some of the responsibilities that would normally be on the associate director so that those functions move forward, even if it's not quite the same. It won't be bad quality. It just may be less quality, right? And this is a good, this is also a developmental, some developmental reasons for this. But when we have a uh, sort of a distinguished breakfast guest for one of our undergraduate groups, one of our undergraduates will moderate the conversation instead of me. Now, we'll, we'll make sure that they're prepared for it, all that sort of thing. We'll train them up and help them get there and do a good job. But maybe, maybe they will not quite do as, maybe they'll do better than me, I don't know. But maybe they won't do as well as, as I would have, being more familiar with the work and, and more in tune with what kind of questions to ask along the way. So we're doing that sort of thing. But to, to summarize it, it's not to fail the students that we have now and the programs that we already have going. And then the second thing that I think we need to do is what I call build a bench. We need a faculty bench. Um, we need a faculty bench uh, in the Clement Center, in the Intelligence Studies Project, all of these things which are, which are running very well, but we may only be one or two people deep, and those, and, and those people may not always be with us. You know, I may not always be with us. And so we want, uh, we want to, honest to goodness, institutionalize the Clement Center, the partnerships that we have with the Strauss Center, so that these can go on productively without us. Broadly, those are the two big things, <laughs> which, mm-hmm. which may be too broad, but uh, to say that those are truly priorities. I know this is a very athletic department thing to say, okay? And, and, and in, in, in academic circles, right, we don't talk this way, but we've kind of had the gas on the pedal or the pedal on the gas, or whatever the right <laughs> metaphor is, right? We've had our foot on the pedal, and it was the gas pedal, not the brake pedal. So we've had our foot on the gas for a few years now, and we want to keep it that way. So we want to be very Sarkeesian-like and uh, all gas, no brakes, right? But uh, w- we also have to make sure that in doing that, we don't burn out staff and the organization and everything else. And so it, it, there's a, there are thoughtful ways to do that. And we figured out some of them, and we just got to continue to do that until, again, until help arrives, right? I just wanted to thank you, Paul, 
for that because it encompasses what my experience has been with the Clement Center and at UT in general. It wouldn't be the same without you and without the work that you've been doing. And I've benefited tremendously. And in conjunction with that, I wanted to ask what role does the center play in shaping the discussions and policy debates around the ongoing Russo-Ukrainian war? And what initiatives and research projects are you developing to address the ongoing crisis? So because we're an educational center primarily and not a think tank primarily, although we do, there are some think tanky things that we do. Most of what we do is educational. You know, I, I think we provide a, a good forum for for discussion of these issues, uh, we bring in guests who may, they may not fall on every part of the spectrum here, but we we do try to be fair about um, about uh, providing our students access to to the reasonable scope of perspectives on on all of these things. And so, I would say naturally, I think that the the Russia Ukraine war the the most reasonable answer is to continue more or less what we're doing. Now we could do more of what we're doing or slightly less of what we're doing, but the the strongest argument is doing what, you know, largely what we're doing is is helping Ukraine, making sure that Russia fails and Ukraine wins. Now again, we we can we can actually parse that in a lot more detail and it needs to be parsed in a lot more detail. You know, for example, we don't want a column of, of Ukrainian tanks approaching Moscow, right? That's that's not what we want. We want them to absolutely to win, but the aggression that is merited against Russia right now doesn't necessarily mean occupying Moscow, right? So that, that there, there's a, a point where we will have to probably rein in, either politically or, or militarily, we will have to rein in Ukraine and say, hey, if you go that far, that's probably going to be against your own interests and our interests and the interests of everybody in the region. So, uh, so, so anyways, as we tease these things out, it's not just help Ukraine at any cost, right? It's, it's, it's hopefully help Ukraine do this as well as possible and as thoughtfully as possible, not just about tomorrow or next week or next month, but even now, even now, thinking about the long piece that we want that everybody wants, or most of us want, you know, maybe there are some people that don't want it, but uh, that most of us want to succeed the, the war or to come after the war. So, so we, we bring these things up through speakers and through the speakers that we had a couple of weeks ago on September 13th and the, the panel. But we also have these discussions. I think sometimes the, the most fruitful discussions are prompted by those sessions, but then occur in smaller groups, you know, whether it's informally with portfolio students in the in the LBJ school or with our undergraduate fellows after a breakfast or, or during a breakfast when it's easier to have a conversation amongst a smaller group rather than 500 of your favorite students and faculty and, and local residents, right? Mm-hmm. So coming back to what we do is is we, we try to, primarily we try to educate. And we do, in doing these things that I've just discussed, we educate people, hopefully, on how best to think about this particular problem and problems in general. But then the scholarship that many of our doctoral students produce is oriented on some of these things as well. Uh, sometimes very specifically, we've had a number of, of scholars come through here, young scholars come through here over the past uh, few years 
that are Russia specialists, more so than probably 10 years ago. And so I think those make contributions too, but in some ways those contributions are less public, at least they're less immediately public. They may become very public in a, in a well-read book or you know, a very popular book or something like that, and that, that has happened. But it's also not necessarily immediate, Im- immediately impactful on policymakers. For impact on policymakers, I think you look to the personal relationships that people have between the Clement Center or kind of this, uh, this constellation of, of Clement Center affiliates who maintain strong relationships with many people in, in both parties and in, in both uh, sides of, uh, of in, in all parts of the government. Uh, and then the Texas National Security Review, War on the Rocks, both of whom we can only take partial credit for, right? We're part of that broader team with Ryan Evans and uh, the War on the Rocks team, that those are ways that we influence these policies as well. So I, th- I think all of that together hopefully has more people getting to a better answer than they would have had otherwise. As you mentioned, we've had a notable keynote speaker two weeks ago, Clint Williamson, who is a lead coordinator for the Atrocity Crimes Advisory Group, and he offered some insights about his work helping Ukraine investigate war crimes. But how do you assess the evolution of the conflict and drawing on your significant military experience, how do you feel that the war will play out? Right. So like everybody, I was surprised. In fact, I remember standing standing just down the hallway here the night before or the day before the invasion, telling one of our students, this is not going to happen. He's Putin is not that ignorant to do this. Right. I mean, I was I was overconfident. And obviously, our intel professionals and our administration at the time knew much better than I did <laughs> and uh, and got that one right. Right. That's thankfully, that's one of the things that we've done very well. But I I think that I'm at this point in life. And I would like to say that it comes from great wisdom, but it probably it's it's great wisdom that probably comes from previous great ignorance. Okay, in in that there were times when I thought that the military could do just about anything, or that different militaries could do just about anything in just about any amount of time. If you go back to the '90s, kind of the standard in the airborne community was 30-day deployment. Right, you you jump in, <laughs> you jump into combat. Do what you need to do for 30 days, straighten out that place in less than a month, get back on the aircraft and go home, right? Take some take some leave and then get back to training. Here you, you look at Grenada, Panama, right? These this is kind of the, the template for American paratroopers and American rangers at the time, is that you can set all things straight in about 30 days, right? Give or take. And uh, in some ways I reflected that mindset as well, is that military power can can do things very quickly, set things straight and then everybody moves on with life. In other words, conflicts can be, we we can wrap up these conflicts very quickly. And I've been disabused of that presumption or that model of of thinking for a while now. And so I did think that this was gonna be a longer fight than everybody else thought. Now, now what I've said five years or 10 years, I, I, I don't know. I just know that I thought this thing is gonna grind on and on and on. It just is. Which is why you you didn't think Putin was going to do it in the first place. <laughs> right, 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 right. Yeah. No, no, no. Right. I, so, so even if Putin would have been successful, thinking before the invasion, my own thinking would have been, why would he even want to do this? Even if he's successful, if he captures Kiev, this is just going to be a huge pain in his ass for the rest of his life. Um, you know, it's not like they're going to be like, oh, gosh, darn, you win. 
yep, got it. Okay, we are all now Russian subjects. No, it's like, we're going to kick your ass a little bit at a time until you're no longer here. And even if it takes 20 or 30 years. So I did view this as a long-term conflict, even if it was a long-term insurgency. Um, obviously, it's not been that. There, you know, while there's certainly some insurgent parts to it in, in Russian-occupied areas, it's predominantly a army-on-army fight. And so, the, so, so, so let me kind of bring it back to the United States for just a second. Is because because this thing is going to be a grind. I would have said we need to posture in a way to help Ukraine survive and win through the grind whether that's insurgency or whether that's what we have, right? You know, I, I, I really like the way Steve Kotkin puts so much of these things. And, and Steve is somebody that wants Ukraine to win, right? He's not trying, and sometimes people, I think, misinterpret what he has to say as like being anti-Ukraine, and it's, it's not. He just, he understands war, even as somebody who's not personally experienced war himself, he understands war so incredibly well that, that he can be, a little bit predictive in these things and more accurate than, than many people most of the time. But the two things that you need are the willpower to fight and the capacity, the materiel and organization, or at least sufficient organization to fight. And so our assistance should be oriented on ensuring that they don't lose their will and ensuring that they don't lose their capacity. And that they, if, if anything, they have too much and that we say, okay, please don't cross the border. Okay, uh, I don't think it'll be that hard to convince them not to do that. But but in the in the moment, if we get to that point, if and when we get to that point, the anger and the frustrations of years will be pent up, and it'll at least initially it will be hard to say no, stop. It's for your own good. That's how, again, generally, I would say we should posture ourselves. And and again, for the most part, we have, and I, I'm sure that. I could tweak things in certain ways that I would say would be better, but broadly, I think we've we've been on the right track. Does Ukraine winning include NATO membership? I, so I actually don't think that that's, and this is, I think this is one of those areas where we can be clever. Sometimes with foreign affairs, and especially when it comes to war, or maybe especially when it comes to war, there needs to be no cleverness. Okay, we're just gonna, we're, we are just gonna destroy them until they cannot fight anymore, period. But then when it comes to, to diplomacy, I think now here, there's, there's room for being clever so that, other, so that everybody feels like they won, okay? So for example, if you give Ukraine really, really, substantial unilateral guarantees of, of security equivalent to, to major non-NATO partnership, things like that, that, you know, that's sufficient, I think. If it helps assuage whatever comes, you know, what or whoever comes after Putin, for example, if it helps assuage them, their, their frustration and anger by saying, Ukraine will never be part of NATO, but we're going to give all these other security agreements there. Again, there's kind of room for being clever so that Russia can say we prevented Ukraine from joining NATO, even though it's only a technicality because all other kinds of assistance and contingencies and everything else for assist for help and coming to their aid in time of war are already there. I do think that there's room for that. 
And I think we, it should be an open question, right? I, I don't, I'm not saying we shouldn't give them NATO membership, but I do think that there's room to be sophisticated and clever when you get to that point. There's not room to be sophisticated and clever to say, look, we won the information, <laughs> we won the information battle and, uh, and your tanks are still approaching Kiev, right? It's, uh, no, you need to destroy the tanks, right? And there needs to be no cleverness there. And you need to, to physically, materially dominate in war in, in a way that there's not, you're not simply trying to be clever, sophisticated. Does that, does that make a little bit of sense? Yeah, no, absolutely. So. Going back to the question that Misha asked about how you think this war is going to play out, do you think that we need to see Putin gone before the war ends? Was, you know, just people surprise you. I don't think that he'll last. I just, I don't, I think that he'll be gone. I think that it will coincide. That's, and what I'm, and why do I believe that? I, I don't have a great reason to tell you why I believe that, but I do think it's likely that it will coincide, that the end of the war will coincide with either Putin's personal end or the end of Putin's power. But that being said, we have seen, you know, seeing political reversals that are truly enormous. You know, some of the ones, and, and I know many people will, will argue with me, right, with some of the, the names I might throw out, but, you know, Ariel Sharon, I think, made a huge change of, of heart at near the end of his, he didn't realize that it was near the end of his uh, time as prime minister, but uh, the unilateral withdrawal from Gaza, that's not a Sharonian thing to do. Okay. I mean, it's, that, that was, to me, that was a, a huge reversal. Now, now, some people would play it differently and say, no, he did that so that he could keep the West Bank. It was really not, it was a trick. Maybe they're right. I, I don't think that they are, but, but that was a, that was a change of heart that, that I thought was big enough that it surprised everybody. You know, I think there are others that we could go through as well that are similarly change their minds in a way that you would just never expect. And may, maybe Putin will do that. Maybe he'll wake up, you know, I don't know. Maybe he'll wake up and say, this was really dumb. So I don't, again, I don't want to be entirely predictive. There is room for, for change here. But, uh, uh, but I think more likely is that the end of the war will coincide with the end of his regime. And, and whether it's, you know, whether it's the, chi- you know, it's a chicken and egg. If you, if I, if I say that, whether the chicken comes before the egg or <laughs> vice versa, um, I, I don't know, but I do think they'll coincide. I guess just to follow up to that, to what extent should the U.S. be like involved in all of this? And is it the U.S.'s responsibility as a Democratic leader to be pulling Ukraine back if they get to that red line? Right. Right. So what is the U.S.'s role? So one is that we we honest to goodness and we're not, of course, absolutely not. we're, We're not perfect, but we try to do things by consensus. Right. So does Ukraine want us there? at the negotiating table? Does Russia want us there at the, at the negotiating table? But who else do they want? Like, do they not, do they want us not there? There are moments in which the United States is the only, even, even by states that don't like us or don't trust us, that we're still the most trusted. It's, which is a weird thing, right? That you don't trust the United States, but you still trust them more than anybody else. I mean, it's, it's really, right? It's, it's true. It's true. That's very much the case in a, in a lot of circumstances. And so are there ways that we can be the connective tissue that pulls this thing together in a way that's honest to goodness by the consent of the parties 
and not. And now we may we may sweeten the pot a little bit and say, we'll, and we'll give you two billion dollars in you know in money for reconstruction or something like that, right? But if we do that, that's not a bad thing, right? And and if nobody else is willing to do that, and we're willing and able to do that, and it and it fundamentally stabilizes a region. It benefits everybody, including us. Um, and we can even, you know, kind of financially tease that out. Say, what does our $2 billion get us, right? So, you know, what, what did our investment in the Marshall Plan get us? We could, we could probably do some pretty good math. We won't get it perfect, but we could do some pretty good math to figure out the, uh, the return on investment of the Marshall Plan. You know, there are some counterfactuals here, and we've got to presume about what the expenses would have been otherwise. But nonetheless, it's not that we don't benefit from being involved or from closing a gap that nobody else can or will close with, again, oftentimes it is. It's, it, it may be money or military aid or, uh, or things like that. But again, if we can do, th- if, if we're there because people want us there and we close a deal that's closed by consent and we happen to fill some of the gaps that help make it palatable for all of the parties, heck yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I don't think it's, I also don't think it's a matter of, well, if we don't do that, then you can't fix the potholes on MLK. Well, we, we happen to be, there's a lot of potholes on MLK. <laughs> so many potholes on MLK. This does not have to be a zero sum financial game. But um, I think Russia thinks it has to be. It, they, they may, uh, at this point, they, they may. And I mean, one of, the, one of the very sad things, right, about, uh, about war is that sometimes the only the only way to end it is to go through it and you hate to see that anybody who has you don't even have to be in war to feel it but certainly people who have been involved in war and understand the absolute devastation of even a small war things can be rebuilt right but lives can never be replaced lives can never and I don't just mean the dead people right i mean the lives of the living can't be reconstructed in a way as if that never happened. But that being said, historically, you can also make a very good case that sometimes the belligerents have to fight it through to the end in order to finally get to an end. Um, and it's hugely tragic. Yeah. I think that's part of, you know, that's kind of part of the human condition, right? Or the human life or human state. But anyways... Many people are arguing for a potential armistice or peace settlement, right. even if temporary, if not permanent. And they say that bad peace is better than a good war. And and you've, you've said that uh, sometimes you have to just fight through it. Uh, do you right. believe that Ukraine could make some sort of settlement with Russia, a bad peace, and not fight through it? Well, I, again, I think this is one of those things where one, this is a new thing to me, a relatively new thing, is that there are policymakers that think you need to get the big thing right and then it'll all work out, right? And, and I'm actually uh, not of that camp. I'm more of the camp that says it's how well you work out the details of whatever grand thing is decided. That's what is really more determinative. So, um, and, and that's where I would fall here is that I'm not against an armistice. I'm against an armistice that has no hope of of then producing some kind of you know process of getting to a really uh, a fair settlement. 
and you know, the, the, the really the, the kind of the textbook example here is the Yom Kippur War, right? And and then and Kissinger doing this really incredible job of getting everybody to an armistice and then unwinding that whole boogernaut in the Sinai until until you have the Camp David Accords, right? I mean, so so if we could have an armistice that we that we thought, okay, if we work hard enough at this, we do think that there's honest to goodness room to get back to 2013, 2014 borders, then yeah, yeah, do that. But if it's just an armistice for, you know, for the sake of, of delaying until the Russians can resupply and attack again, no. So, <laughs> so sorry, man, I'm being non-committal. <laughs> I'm developing the options. <laughs> no, it make, makes total sense. <laughs> back at your career in the military, in academia, um, what lesson would you offer uh, people who want to change the world to the better, to unwind this this difficult knot, you know, sort of like Henry Kissinger did, you mentioned. Uh, How do people become proficient at doing this and having this vision for things? So so I I think uh, there's a few things that, and so, so let me let me wax eloquently on this for a minute. And maybe something will be relevant to the question you asked. No, so so I thought a lot about this this past summer. Is that there's a difference, and and I'm not panning uh, activists. Okay, um, it may sound like I am, and I'm and I'm not. I'm not. Uh, there's there's a place for activists and activism, but uh, activists can be single issue people that never have to solve a problem. Okay, they want a problem solved and they want a problem solved the way they want that problem solved, period. But that's not the way the world works. That's not the way people work. That's not the way governments and society works. Our lives are never a single issue life. Right. Uh, and so so you do need to understand that if that if you're serious about trying to unwind the booger knots. Right? Mm-hmm. So I don't know if that's going to sound very good on a podcast, but, <laughs> but the Gordian, the Gordian, the, you know, we'll, we'll mix our metaphors here, the Gordian mm-hmm. booger knots. So, um, so if, if, uh, if you want to be the kind of person that is involved in that work, just be prepared to be frustrated and you've got to be, uh, you've got to be willing to accept frustration because you can't solve a problem. You've got to solve lots of problems as best as possible at any given time. And you're only, and you're only, usually you're only contributing to one small part of everything that's going on. So, so I guess, uh, you know, one of the things is, is that you've got to simultaneously be very ambitious about uh, being serious about solving big problems, but then also be hugely humble about your capacity to personally make a, a, a difference and that a lot of these things are done on the margins. A lot of them are done incrementally over generations. And then even, even more than that, the world, and I don't know, you know, people would say this is like enlightenment thinking or whatever, and they're probably right. I, I don't know. But one of the ways that we think is that we naturally think, and I don't think it's an American thing, or I'm, I'm not sure. I don't think it's necessarily an American or a Western thing. Maybe it is, but that we can sort of get everything to this, uh, we can get the whole world to this state of equilibrium where everything is, you know, sort of 
sort of perfect and peaceful and grow. You know, the the uh, the uh, inflation grows at two percent a year for for all eternity after that, right? And so uh, so everything is stable and predictable. That's not that's not the way it's going to be. So even while you're trying to solve the problems that interest you and make marginal or incremental progress on the problems that really interest you because you love China or you love, you know, they're just, you're just fascinated by Taiwan and its relationship to China. And so you really want to do that. Well, do, do that. But at the same time, there's the, the world's going to unravel. And even if you're doing a great job there, the world's going to unravel in several other places while you're keeping it together in one place. <laughs> All right. So, so this is, this is, uh, there is no light at the end of the tunnel. All right. That that this is a, this is the work uh, of people forever. Okay, and um, and and that we need to be humble and gracious in the way that we go about it, and that being and you know sort of being motivated and humble and gracious all at the same time, we may actually be able to to make some good progress, but it'll never be permanent. I like to call those kind of people proactive pessimists. (laughs) (laughs) Destroyers of hope. Destroyers of hope. Well, kind of like a George Kennan, you know, because he was definitely very pessimistic, but he did stuff. And that's what I always say. Okay, your final words. Um, Is there anything that you'd like to plug or share like what's on the horizon for you what what is next in your life I, I don't know I don't know so I do hope to so I do hope to finish you know my my book that was my dissertation right I, like everybody that finishes a PhD needs to do and that's reasonable but I do we you know we need to the most more important are the students here and that they that they get where they need to go but I would like to finish that in the next 12 18 months but you know what else I'd like to see? I'd like to see uh, lots of centers and programs be like be like Crease, for real, for real. Because uh, because you all are in, you know you're you're enthusiastic, you're serious, you you do stuff right. You you have a vibrant community, and um, and it's and it's it's open minded. You know, it's it's cultural. It's also political. You know, it's it's. It's realist and constructive, right? I mean, it's all of these things, and it's openly all of these things, and it's and it's a friendly place for people to be. It's not uh, it's it's not hyper partisan. It's you know it's it's just a, a really uh, I, maybe everyone will get insulted, but it's one of my it's you know beyond the Clement Center's like immediate circle of uh, of, uh, of friends. You're the in my mind, you're the um, epitome of what a, a university center should be, because because you are so active and vibrant, right, and serious about what you're serious minded about what it is that you're doing, and humble too. You guys carry humility with you that that uh, many of us in academia do not have, because right? <laughs> we all know we're all experts and we know the the answers. Yeah, so that's what I would like to see. And if we can be a motivation and a help to, you know, we we love to to always be partners with you all. Um, and if we can be a motivation and a help to other centers to be similarly uh, healthy and vibrant and, and, and constructive, then that'd be great. Well, thank you so thank much. You. Oh, thank you guys. And I'm, I'm glad I didn't prepare. 
<laughs> it was amazing. One of our best episodes ever. Seriously. We're very, oh, I'm no. very excited to put this out. So, yeah. Was really so stressed out. We're stressed out for nothing. Slavic Connection is part of the Texas Podcast Network. The conversations changing the world. Brought to you by the University of Texas at Austin. The opinions expressed in this program represent the views of the hosts and the guests and not of the University of Texas at Austin. For more information, please visit us online at slobxradio.com. Thank you. The Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies condemns the Russian Federation's military invasion of Ukraine. We stand in support of the people of Ukraine who are fighting for their lives and sovereignty in the face of the unjustified invasion by Russian military forces. I'm like, I have half of these books. And like me, you've read about two. I have done the academic readings of all of these books. Right. <laughs> academic reading is like two pages. <laughs> academic reading is surveying the table content. <laughs> reading a few paragraphs of the introduction. You get a couple good footnotes that you can, that you yeah. can mm-hmm. criticize. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's how you get through grad school. <laughs> exactly.